0: Sports talk new york with your hosts mark rosenman and aj carter sports talk new york is sponsored in part by prince associates for all your insurance needs the phoenix tube company the law firm of Declator cohen and DePrisco, solomon jewelers and general needs charity serving our homeless veterans with dignity and now here are your hosts mark and aj joining us now is the current director of hockey operations for the chicago wolves of the american hockey league As a player, he played three seasons with the Pittsburgh Penguins, Oakland Seals, and Chicago Blackhawks in the National Hockey League. He scored a goal on his first Blackhawks shift, playing alongside the great Hall of Famer Stan Mikita, who unfortunately we lost this past week. In 1970, he returned to school to become a coach, which led to his return to the NHL as a head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. He later moved on to the Chicago Wolves as a coach in 1994 and has remained with the organization ever since. It is a thrill to welcome the pride of the Sioux, the one and only Gino Briaco <laughs> to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome coach. Hi Mark, how are you? Doing good. Before we talk about your relationship with the great Stan Mikita, let's talk a little bit about your career because it, it, it's very interesting and it's, it's an interesting road to the NHL. You played your youth hockey in Sault Ste. Marie and were a member of the 1953-54 team which won the Sioux, the North Ontario, and All-Ontario titles, but you were also a pretty good baseball player, and from what I've heard, you were actually offered a chance to go to the St. Louis Cardinals training camp, so what made you stick with hockey, and how good of a baseball player were you?
1: Well, you know, I wasn't bad for a Canadian at that time, (laughs) but uh, really, I... uh... The only the reason I didn't go, I think I had to, I had to chip in some money for, for something. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when you come from a little town in uh, a, a small area called the West End, uh, we weren't exactly the most uh, wealthy people in the world. So it was easy for me to turn that down because I wasn't able to come up with that. But, but I, did, I did get the invitation and to go down to Florida, one of their rookie camps, and uh, but I love baseball. I, I really believe if had I been living in the United States, I think I may have gone on and tried baseball, but that might've been even tougher than it was for me in hockey. So, you know, as a little guy uh, trying to make it, when I think of it now, looking back, Mark, uh, my size, I was like five, seven and a half uh, cheating a little bit. <laughs> I, I think my first year in the NHL, I weighed uh, 161 or something. Uh, I didn't make it. Uh, I did some stupid things. And I, I'm saying stupid because they were, because when I was 18, uh, I was brought down to uh, Toronto, Maple Leafs, and I played for St. Mike's and, uh, and bringing Stan into it. I, I played against uh, Dan Makita and Bobby Hall, Chico Mackey. All these guys uh, played for St. Catharines, and we were, in, we we're all affiliated with NHL teams then you know, junior hockey in Canada. and uh, But I was called in when I was 18 to sign a C form. And what it meant was that uh, I didn't know at the time. I wish I did. We didn't have agents. But I went in there and they offered me, I think it was 400 or $500 to sign the C form, which meant I was going to get a chance in the NHL when I became 20. But it also said, how much I was going to get paid my first two years in the NHL. (laughs) And like a dummy, uh, I'm from the West End of the Sioux. I'm a white guy, right? I told them it wasn't enough money. (laughs) 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 And and, and I can imagine when I walked out of that office. And so then my first year pro, when they owned me anyway, they shipped me out to uh, British Columbia, to New Westminster, the only thing that kept me from getting ending up in China somewhere was the uh, ocean. So they really liked me. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent, I spent uh, four years with the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs and their organization. And uh, going to camp, I roomed with uh, Red Kelly, uh, Bobby Bond, and, of course, uh, Tim Horton. And uh, so I was kind of being groomed and didn't know it, but I was a little bit of a wise guy. And I learned the hard way. You know, at that time, we didn't have a player's association and uh, anything like that, not like what they have today. Tell everyone, uh, you know, when I talk about my career, I played from 1959 to 1970 B.C., before <laughs> cash. <laughs> not, not before Christ. <laughs> but that's actually the truth. And, uh, you know, the the one thing about that line, I used it one time, Gordy Howe was, was on the DS with me, that night, and he said, "You mind if I use it?" I said, "Score ahead." I think, <laughs> I think it would really work for you real well.
0: <laughs> it's also interesting because uh, some of your linemates at St. Michael's were Frank Mahovlich and Dick Duff. So you know, that's right. How, yeah. you know, what was your recollection of, of playing on a line with those two guys?
1: Oh my God! Uh, well, Frank Frank led the league in scoring. I think he had 52 goals. He played center at that time. And Dick Duff was there a short time, yes, yeah, because cause Dick Duff actually made the Maple Leafs at 18 years old. And I played for him when I was 17, and, and Frank, the next year he went up and he was still in high school with us at St. Mike and playing in the National Hockey League. It was amazing. And the same thing happened to uh, Frank a little later on. That. He went uh, to the National League and played uh, played with Red Kelly, you know, and, and had great prayers and uh no, I was, in, I was in the mix. In fact, uh, when I was brought down from Sault Ste. Marie, the only other player they brought in was Frank Mahavich. Of course, they did things a little different for Frank. I think they <laughs> moved his whole family. <laughs> but, but let me tell you, you, at that time, you had to go along to get along. If you didn't, uh, you know, they could make it hard on you. There's only six teams. And uh, I understand that now. Being in management, I, I can imagine what they were thinking when I asked. I uh, didn't think that was enough money. But, you know, I, when I made the NHL finally, it was interesting. It was because uh, there, were, there were 12 players from my, my, the west end of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. We almost all went to the same church, and there, and there was only 12 teams. And uh, I understand now that someone's calculated. I think there's something like about 47, 40, or almost 50 players that came from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, which is a town of about 65 to 8,000 people, and played in the NHL. It's remarkable, really. Absolutely. There's something in the water up there. Yeah,
0: they, yes. they, they say it's the uh, St. Pedro de Macarisa uh, baseball, you know, that's, it's the equivalent. <laughs> You know, it's interesting because you noted your travels through through hockey. And, and you mentioned Westminster Royals, but you also played for the Sudbury Wolves, the Rochester Americans. Yeah, you mentioned the Pittsburgh Hornets. And then finally for the Hershey Bears. And when the 1967 NHL draft came about, your potential to play in the NHL... Was difficult because the Bears weren't an NHL affiliated team, which meant you weren't eligible for that draft. But you got some pretty good advice on how to get to the NHL.
1: Could you share that story (laughs) with our audience? Sure, will. It uh, was well. Let's put it this way: I pretty well negotiated my way into the NHL because I was uh, belonging. uh, I asked uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs after four years. And they were shipping me. I went to Pittsburgh, to Rochester, back to Rochester, and and then back to Pittsburgh, I believe. And uh, I was going nowhere. I'd go to camp, and then they they would, you know, if they wanted a small guy that could maybe score some goals, whatever team in the American League wanted me, Toronto sent me there, you know. <laughs> so I asked uh, I asked uh, uh, Punch Emblak to trade me, and I said I'd prefer to go to uh, uh, to Hershey Bears. And he said, no, no problem. He said, you've always, uh, you know, you've been a trooper. And he did trade me. So I went there, and I was with the Hershey Bears for four years. And along comes 1967. And lo and behold, the only players that could be uh, drafted are, have to be owned by the, uh, by the uh, NHL team. And I was owned by Hershey. So I was doing a radio show in my hometown And I went to the draft as a reporter and I had a tape recorder and I was taping some interviews and I happened to meet up with some NHL uh, uh, managers because they all knew me from playing in the NHL or in the American League. In fact, I scored 80 goals the last two years in the American League. And I'm watching the draft and this guy's getting drafted with five goals, six (laughs) goals. (laughs) and so at lunchtime, a couple of them came up to me and they said, you know, Gene, if you were available, we would probably be, be thinking of, of taking you on our club on one of the new teams. So when I went back, I asked for a little bit of a raise. I think Willie Marshall is a great player in the American Hockey League. I think he made the most money in, uh, in Hershey's history and was something like 13000 So I didn't want to compare myself to Willie. But I did ask for about 11000 and obviously they weren't ready to pay it. And I was all set, packed, ready to go. And I get a call from the manager, a wonderful man, uh, uh, Frank Mathers. It's just a class act. And he said, Ubi, you finally got your wish. you are traded." And I just almost fell off my chair. And then after that, I get up and I said, oh, who do they get traded for? And he said, Jeanneau Gilbert. And then I almost off my chair again because Jeanneau Gilbert was my centerman. <laughs> for the first For the two years, I scored 80 goals. And something happened. He went to Boston because they had some players from Boston and Hershey. And when they asked him, where do you think you're going to play? And he didn't say Pittsburgh. Or, pardon me, he didn't say Boston. He said, wherever you think. <laughs> and that little thing that he said made made them feel he wasn't sure he could play in the NHL. So they traded Janelle Gilbert for me. And so in a way, I negotiated my own way because I was heading home. And who knows where I was going? I was going to probably go back to school like I did when I was 31. But uh, who knows? I may have ended up in that steel plant that haunted me every day when I played on the outdoor rink in Sault Marine. <laughs>
0: If you just tuned in, we're talking to Gino Briacco. And, you know, it's interesting because you really persevered. And, like you said, you negotiated your own way into the NHL. So I have to imagine that first NHL game takes on a little added significance for you as opposed to a guy who gets drafted and, and goes right through and, you know, through the minor leagues and right to it. Take us back to that first game and what it meant to you to actually pull on an NHL jersey.
1: Well, it was really significant because I think I got into town Friday. And uh, I, don't, I don't think I – I think I made the practice. And then we went into warm-up the next day, and we were playing the Montreal Canadiens. And it was going to, be, going to be the first game that the expansion, the new six, were coming in to make the 12 teams in the NHL. And we're playing against the Montreal Canadiens. And lo and behold, there I am. I'm playing left wing in the starting lineup with Andy Bathgate at center ice and Kenny Schinkel on right wing. And, and you know what? We lost, we lost the game, or we tied the game, I think. And 2-2, uh, two, two, or we lost 2-1, something like that. But it was very significant because everybody was kind of watching and wondering how the new teams would do. But you know A, a significant uh, number is, is the number 87. And that's where you know, we're going to be. Talking about Stan and, and his, his, and his passing away, uh, just this week. Well, Stan had 87 points the year before of expansion, with six teams, and he led the NHL. The next year, uh, he he went into, when we played with the new six teams. He he led the NHL again with 87 points. <laughs> <laughs> so all the guys that played in that expansion team. We had so much respect for the original six. But every time we went into a game, we wanted to make sure it was close. We wanted to play our hearts out, and we wanted to show that we belonged. And a lot of us were wallowing in the AHL at that time. So when we got cracked, we gave it all we had. And the interesting part is I think that from that 87 points, I think the next year the scoring went up to maybe 110. And then after that, it blew wide open. With uh, you know Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and, and of course Gretzky, uh, all those numbers went crazy after that. But the first year of expansion, you check it out, the scoring actually didn't go up at all. It stayed the same, and, uh, and it goes to goes to the talent of the guys that were behind them. Uh,
0: you played two seasons with the Penguins before being traded to Charlie Finley's white skate wearing Oakland Seals. What was it like for playing <laughs> yeah. for Charlie Finley?
1: Well, you know, I was there. I got there when uh, you know who. But I got there the year uh, before uh, I got traded from Pittsburgh, which probably was another, you know, not a great moment for me because I actually scored over thirty goals in the in the first two seasons, seasons. Uh, with, with Pittsburgh. And then I go over there, and I I think I scored four goals and had eight or nine assists, and we ended up in second place. I think Charlie Finley, he left. In fact, Whitey Ford was part of the group that uh, came in there while I was there at the end of my first season there in 68. And uh, he came in with a group and they bought the team. And I actually met Whitey Ford. (laughs) He was part of this group uh, that bought the open Seals from Charlie. And from what I heard, you know, the guys uh, wore, wore white skates, but I think they could have worn white straitjackets. It would have been (laughs) because someone. We our big line was when anyone called the the arena and said, "What time is the game tonight?" And most of the time, they were told to to answer, "What time can you get here?" (laughs) Because there wasn't too many people staying coming to hockey games. In fact, I could tell you one real funny story when I. I was there the part of that one year, then I go the next year, and uh, I go to a fan club banquet, and they, you know, and I, I meet everyone there, and I said to my wife, you know, let's go over to, let's go over to San Francisco because we hadn't even been over there between the, the end of the, the season before, before and the beginning of this season. So we go over there, and every time I, I go to the toll booth and someone looks at me and he says, hi, Gene, and I pay my toll. And then I'm walking along the streets of San Francisco, and people are saying, Hi, Gene. And I say, then I say to my wife, You know, maybe hockey's going to catch on. <laughs> then another guy comes up to me, and he's looking, really looking at me, but he's kind of staring at my shirt. And didn't I leave on my name tag from, <laughs> from the luncheon? And it said, Hi, my name's Gene Ubriaco. <laughs> Uh, uh. But anyway, I I ended up not scoring too many goals there, but I did end up being the highest scorer uh, on the team uh, at that time, or second highest scorer. So when I went back to camp in Oakland, I held up, (laughs) and they they had sent me a contract in the summer, and I didn't sign it. So I go to Oakland, and I I wait. So I I don't sign. I'm the last guy to sign, and sure enough, you know it, hockey, that's the way it was. No, no. Well, let me tell you, uh, the coach over there must have really liked me because he kept me on the bench right beside him. <laughs> and, and then they traded me at Christmas, like the day before Christmas, I got traded to the Chicago Blackhawks. And, and, and probably one of the best things that ever happened to me, but. But that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: mentioned that trade to the Blackhawks, and, you know, you're right. You get you score your goal on a very first shift with the Blackhawks. It's assisted by one of the all-time greats, Stan Mikita, who, as we mentioned, passed away this past week after a very long battle with dementia. You were very close to Stan. Can you tell our listeners what Stan Mikita meant to you?
1: Well, you know what? He, he, he was so special for me because... Uh, Number one, I'd like to talk about his, the, the way he played. I mean, you know, Stan McKee, people don't realize, when he picked up the puck, he had the knack of he could faint people out. He, could, he, would, he, he would come up the ice, take a pass in his own in. and you could throw a pass. Our defense could throw the pass anywhere up the middle. In fact, he's probably one of the guys who revolutionized the game in a way that we before the puck came out, Either somebody circled the net and brought it, or they brought it up the wall. Not too many times the guys came up the ice, up the middle. But Stan was so great at it that every other sentiment kind of copied him. Then he'd pick up that puck inside the blue line, and then he'd be watching the defense, and if the defense started storming back and they'd turn around backwards, well, Stan, Stan would hustle at first. They'd hustle back. Then once they stopped and they got on their heels, then maybe Stan would make a pass and then they couldn't react. But his his change of pace was so significant. It's something you won't even see in the game today because everybody's going a hundred miles an hour out there. It's a greater it's a great game. I love it. It's skillful, it's fast. People love it, thank God. But I tell you, you don't see you don't see the, the change of pace. You don't see it was more of a game of chess, I think, uh, in the 60s and, and part of the 70s than before it opened up. But now it's almost like pinball. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, there's, there's more caroms off people and, 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 and sticks and everything. Uh, uh, I, I, I would like to see them clean the front of the net up a little bit and let, let the defensemen take the man out if he's near the crease like they used to and let the goalie see the puck. but. But, hey, the game's doing well. It's wonderful. Let's put it this way. I wish I was playing more now than ever. Boy, with no red line, let (laughs) me tell you, when I leave the zone in a hurry, (laughs) in my defensive zone, I'd be up the ice all night looking for a pass. (laughs) I mean, because now you can pass the puck from behind your net all the way to the far blue line. That was a no-no in the old days. Yeah, it's so interesting
0: that, that you first want to touch on the way Stan played, and, and it's also what kind of struck me. My, my first remembrance, like when, when I heard the news that Stan Makita passed away, was as a Ranger fan, you know, whenever you watch the you know, Rangers play the opposing teams on television, there are always certain teams you always focused on, and obviously with the Blackhawks, when the Rangers played the Blackhawks, it was Tony Owen, Nett, you know, and Hull, but there was something about Stan Makita that just made you watch the way he played the game uh, and it was different you know there were guys you know with speed like corn YA but you're right he, he just sensed the game differently at that time than others did and you know he's obviously one of the NHL's 100 greats but I'm not sure if this generation of hockey fans give Stan the respect for his playing ability like some of the other names and, and and I guess it's because he went about his business in such a quiet way. Why do you think exactly. that, that Stan is not in that grouping that doesn't jump out to, you know, maybe current announcers that talk about the game as much as,
1: you know, his teammate, you know, Bobby Hull? Yes. Well, you know, Bobby would just lift people out of their seats because he was using circle and that came all the way with the puck and hammered the puck from, from anywhere. Uh, actually, from the goal line, sometimes he hit the goalie in the in the shoulder, <laughs> and it would drop in. I've seen that happen. You no, know, Stan, like I say, uh, Stan Mikita, and, and then and obviously Wayne Gretzky, uh, he gets the plaudits, and then there's a little guy too, and uh, another little guy uh, was uh, Richard, Henry Richard. And I guess uh, with Sam Makita you might say he was doing the moonwalk before Michael Jackson. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, he, he, had that, he had that way. If you went to hit him, he was backing up when if he was going forward. You went to hit him, he ended up backing up. It's like trying to hit a moving wall. You know, it just kept going away from you. Wayne Gretzky did the same thing. But uh, with his funeral coming up, you know, I I, I they're doing a, a real wonderful thing today. They're they're opening up the atrium at the at, at the center, the United Center, and people are going in there from two o'clock on this afternoon, and uh, and and celebrating his life. And uh, we're going to be on by there soon. And but for me, like I said, uh, personally, when I retired from the Blackhawks, I I didn't have a knife. That's for sure. I retired on the phone because <laughs> they wanted me to go to the minors after playing in Chicago, and, uh, and I just sure wasn't going backwards. All my life, all I wanted to do was play in the NHL. And uh, I told these in so many words, <laughs> you know, who are you to sit in your eyes tower what to do with my life and hung up the phone. And then about a month later, I get a call from Stan and said, <laughs> Gene, did you ever get your Prince of Wales trophy and and the beautiful ring that we got? I said, No, I sure didn't. He says, Well, he said, I happened to see it in Tommy Ivan's office. So he says, I'll, I'll get it to you. So he goes in there and he talks to Tommy. And I'm not saying Tommy wasn't going to get it to me, but this was like October, season had <laughs> all started of the next year. And Stan went out, out of his way, got that for me. It sits, uh, I got the ring. I'm so proud of it. And uh, all because of Stan. So uh, when he asked me to, he called me another time and said, hey, would you, would you help me run a hockey school? Because I was running hockey schools and all over the country at that time. And you know, something to do. I had to work. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, So I, uh, he asked me to come down. And uh, you might say 45 years later, I'm still paying Stan Makeda back. Because not only did he, pay, did he do that for me, but I'll tell you, meeting all these deaf kids, and I've learned more from them than I've learned in any other part of my life, really. Seeing how they, with a little inconvenience, have made the most of their lives. And in fact, now we have most of our coaches are on. former students of the school. Uh, it's called hia, and we're very proud of it. And Stan's the, the big reason we all have that hia today. Uh, some
0: some of our listeners might n- exactly not know what that camp is could you explain to them what you guys do and what you've been doing like you mentioned for over 45 years for the camp that you and Stan founded
1: yes we uh what happened is uh one of the, uh, our friends he owned a sausage company Leon uh, Leon's it was called or his son kept getting cut because he uh you know part of it was because he couldn't hear and uh and so his his dad was a good friend of Stan. Also, uh, Mike Mike Dicka was a good friend. And in fact, I met Mike Ditka at Leon Sausage uh, when I when I came here in the, in the, in the '67 and when I visited here. And uh, so he uh, he asked Stan about it. Stan called me, and uh, we never said it was a handicap. It was always an inconvenience. And I remember telling Stan, you know, we're going to treat these kids like hockey players because that's what they are. Once they come over the boards, they're hockey players, like the rest of us. And what we do is we run the camp for a week, and um, they come here, and the people that can't afford it, we try to raise the money for them that they can afford it to come. And uh, every year we have approximately 75 to 100 boys that come, and we divide them up to freshmen, JV and varsity, and then, then we've added, uh, you know, preliminary skating for the, the younger boys. And then we also help uh, to, to put in the uh, the uh, USA Deaf Hockey Olympic team. They they recruited at our camp, and we help out with that. And 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 let me tell you, like I said, uh, sometimes I'm almost envious of the people that have uh, these children because uh, you, 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 they're so loving and uh, so caring that. Uh, you you know you can't do enough for them. To tell you, to, to tell you the truth, but but then we always had them write us letters, that, uh, let us know what's going on during the year, so that then if say some coach really didn't uh, you know wasn't you know not taking care of the kid the way we thought he should, maybe didn't put him up in the front of the class when he was speaking, maybe not speaking clearly like moving your lips like Stan when we first started the school. <laughs> Stan was talking to the kids, and and one of the kids, his name is Dave Zimmerman, and he's actually on the board. He represents a our school, on the uh, A House Amateur Hockey USA uh, as, as a representative of us. He's now like 45, or mm-hmm. actually he'd be around 50. Well, when we were at the first meeting, Dave Zimmerman has his hand up, and he wants to ask a question. And Stan says, uh, "Yes, Dave." Uh, you have a question? Yes. He asked. He asked Stan. He said, "Are you a ventriloquist, Mr. Makita? Are you a ventriloquist?" And Stan said, "No." He said, "Well, would you please move your lips?" <laughs> 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 so, so we all learned to speak a little clearly, <laughs> oh. and we learned, on the first day of our our, our time with the kids, and we've gone on to make signs for the deaf. Uh, Uh, We have such great relationships, and from day one, all of us, I remember standing by the glass saying someday these players will be running their own hockey school, and that was 45 years ago, and right now we have a a boy that's graduated from our school, he's the president, all our board members are former students, and like I said, uh, Dave Zimmerman is a representative on the A-House in the national body of hockey in the United States.
0: a tremendous legacy that Stan has left uh, with your help founding that school. Before we let you go, we want to talk a little bit about your post-playing career. You retired after the 69-70 season after having played 177 NHL games where you recorded 39 goals, 35 assists for 74 career points. You then turned to coaching, first at Lake Superior State, and in 1988 you're named the Pittsburgh Penguins head coach. The 88-89 Pens are led by Mario Lemieux, 85 goals, 100 199 points, as well as Rob Brown's 115 points. You guys finished second in the Patrick division, qualified for the playoffs for the first time in seven seasons. It's also the very first taste that Mario Lemieux gets of playoff hockey. What do you remember most <laughs> about coaching a very young Mario Lemieux?
1: Well, I can remember talking to him right at uh, at camp, our first camp. Uh, I was there with him, and I remember saying to him, uh, You know, Mario, he said, I'm so impressed with the way you, he, he did every fundamental. And, you know, when you run hockey schools, that's what it's all about, right? Fundamentals and teaching the kids how to do all the fundamentals properly, skating, shooting, passing. And I said, boy, I said, you know, every time he passed the puck, he never looked at the guy. He looked off the guy. You know what I'm saying? You never knew where the pass was going. He also had that moonwalk (laughs) kinda look where he can set the change of pace. And I said to him one day, because I would I would skate behind Mario Mule and I would throw pucks on either side of him while I was behind him. And invariably every time I throw a puck on his left side, he'd put the stick to the left side and he'd see the puck. And put it on the right side and he'd drop his stick just as the puck was coming by. I put it by slowly, but he would catch it. You know what I mean? I think he had this peripheral vision that was amazing. Uh, I'm not saying he saw through the back of his head, but <laughs> but anyway, he said, "I he said I only look, I only watch hockey on CBC Canada, <laughs> <laughs> hockey night in Canada." I said, "My God, you must have been looking through the television because it was amazing." But And, and, you know, the year he scored 85 goals, I never thought anyone would ever break Wayne Gretzky's record of 92. But i got to tell you that uh, Mario had 85 goals. i got to tell you he had at least 25, 30 breakaways, and maybe he scored on half of them. So he had the opportunity to get 92 goals. And the 199 points, that's not accurate. Because the last game, he got a point, they gave him an assist, he had 200 points, and Mario, at the end of the game, went over to the scorer and told the scorer, I didn't deserve that assist.
0: Oh, wow. Wow look at everything you've accomplished in the game. You received the 1973-74 United States Hockey League Coach of the Year, 79-80 Eastern Hockey League Coach of the Year, 90, uh, 1981 induction to the Sault Ste. Marie Hockey Hall of Fame, 2012 induction into the Illinois Hockey Hall of Fame. Of everything that you've done in the game of hockey, what's the one thing you're most proud of?
1: My association with uh, with, the with the deaf kids and seeing you know, living to see these boys, uh, become men and, uh, uh, and, and, and what great men they are. You know what I mean? They're special people. And, uh, and also I think I'm proud of the fact, uh, I'm part of, uh, history with, uh, six, uh, 67 and, and the original six. And, and I have so much respect for my fellow teammates. Um, uh, you know, our guys, we signed autographs, we, uh, we did everything that was asked of us and, uh, and more and continue to do it. Uh, Wayne Gretzky followed suit. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, I, I am a hockey player. I think when I was at home in Sault Ste. Marie, I think, the, you know, in Canada, they didn't respect hockey players until 72, if you want to know <laughs> the truth. Because when 72, when we beat the Russians in that 72 uh, series and Phil made that great speech in Vancouver, uh, I don't know if you remember that, but, uh, and, and Canada finally got recognized from the world as a superpower in hockey. I can remember I was retired for two years, went up to the Sioux, and I think I never, I don't even think I signed an autograph of my hometown. When I went into the Sioux in 1972, I went into a bank, and because of that team winning, <laughs> I was actually asked, asked uh, for an autograph of my hometown. <laughs> okay. and it was all because of that 72 team making its mark in Canada. For, for most of us, they just thought of us as other guys, but the only reason we're not in the SEAL plan is because uh, we're playing hockey, but after hockey, we're going right back there. But the, the point is, uh, and I think 1980 did it for the U.S. hockey.
0: Absolutely. So every,
1: hockey play, every, every hockey player that could play in the NHL before, and while and during and whatever and after, I think, gets more respect because of that. Because let me tell you, it was a tough league to me when there were six teams. And, uh, and, I, and I have to say, uh, he and keeping friends and, and the, my, my fellow hockey players during the 16 regime, I'm very proud of them and honor them.
0: Coach, thanks so much for making your time today to allow us to pre-tape this. I know you have the big reunion at the Chicago Wolves tonight, uh, so enjoy that. And um, I'm looking forward when I'm out in Chicago uh, for the Rangers game in October to, to meet up with you in, in, in Chicago. So thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it.